Hello, everybody. A very warm welcome to this joint webinar between Wild Search and Spectrum. I'm Edward Wild, Managing Director of Wild Search, and it's a great pleasure to have with us today a panel of five distinguished um, educational uh, and technology um, experts, people running organisations in their in their areas of specialism, and they'll introduce themselves in a moment. Uh, the format is very simple. Um, I'll ask each of them to introduce themselves. I then have some pre-prepared questions to ask uh, of all or some of the panelists. Then after about 45 minutes, uh, I'll hand over to Daniel Osner, my co-chair, who will field some live questions from those of you who are watching, um, and uh, Daniel will bring this to a conclusion um, within an hour. So. Um, Without further ado, I'm going to ask the panellists to introduce themselves say, um, and, and tell you what they do, uh, and then I'll open the discussion. So let's begin with uh, Wendy. Hello, I'm Wendy Pyatt. I'm Chief Executive of Gresham College. Uh, previously, I've had several roles, but uh, they include being CEO of the Russell Group. And I spent some time as a senior civil servant in Whitehall as Deputy Director of the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit and within the Department of Education. Um, but on Gresham, Gresham was established in 1597, can you believe, to provide high quality lectures to Londoners free of charge and, wait for it, in English. And that was groundbreaking for the time because no higher education institution in England um, taught in English, they taught in Latin and Greek. And that mission, to provide greater access for people of all backgrounds to authoritative knowledge and a robust education prevails to this day. Uh, just to finish, and like I think the fellow panellists, we don't actually package our lectures as courses at the moment. One of the joys of Gresham is that we call it kind of no strings intellectual stimulation. So there's no fee, there's no enrolment. Uh, so you can watch a lecture on Dickens one day and then tune in to another lecture on, about computer algorithms the next day. But I'll finish on this point. But, and this is what I, what I want to learn from the fellow panellists, we are thinking of at least providing some collections of lectures in the form of loose online learning, such as a beginner's guide to astronomy. Thanks very much, Wendy. It was it was great pleasure this time last year. We were involved in in working on what became Wendy's appointment, um, and and that was the first uh, I think assignment we worked down during lockdown. So that's just a little bit of an insight from <laughs> from my experience, and I, I'm sure Daniel's got other stories to share. Um, so from London to um, not quite New York, but certainly across the Atlantic, Michael. Hi, I'm Michael Chung. I'm uh, CEO of the Education. Cambridge Information Group. I also am going called Brand Ed Holdings. Uh, Brand Ed stands for Branded Education. Um, I uh, started my career out on Wall Street at, at Goldman uh, and found myself now in the education business. Um, what Brand Ed does, Brand Ed owns two schools right now. One is the Sotheby's Institute of Art, and the second school is the School of the New York Times. Um, and our business model and our hypothesis that we're trying to prove out is that the uh, going forward, that the, uh, the most exciting segment of the education space, in particular, where we're looking for students to upskill themselves and get access to real career opportunities, our content and education partnered with the top corporate brands in the world. And so that's the hypothesis we're trying to prove out. So in the media space, we've partnered with the New York Times. In the art and art business-related space, we're partnered with Sotheby's. Um, and we are continuing to build that model uh, with some of the top uh, brands in the world. We have a, uh, a couple of sports teams uh, that's in the pipeline right now. We have a fashion brand that we're working with. Uh, hopefully, we'll uh, sign up that partnership shortly. And again, the notion is that um, there's going to be that much more innovation agility and relevance uh, to educational content coming from the corporate side versus the traditional higher education providers. 
Thanks very much, Michael. And from a um, some historic brands and names to more contemporary, um, uh, newer business. Uh, David, tell us about uh, what you do in your business. Yeah, thank you very much there. But yeah, I'm based in Asia and I've been based in Asia for 25 years. And similar to Michael, I spent 15 years in investment banking in Hong Kong, uh, managing the ABN Amaro's Asian business for the bulk of that. And the reason I came into education was actually really looking at my sister's children and thinking, you know, this is a pretty opaque situation and, you know, how to understand it. And the way that I've come to education is 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 from a sort of more agnostic, probabilistic sense. So what we do is that we look about how can education be transformed through data? How can we look at different data cohorts and understand scope and sequence and understand the education delivery? And if if you like, it's... We want to try and hold a mirror to schools' pedagogy or to groups and give them a better, a clearer understanding, an easier way to communicate with the parents and just a deeper insight into the learning process. And I, I think that's that's been our mission. So as a result, uh, I think we're rapidly becoming Asia's leading platform. We're very agnostic towards content. So we really prov- we use HTML5 tools to allow people to create to create but we also have a leading uh, data science team based out of London. So we've h- recently hired the head of Dyson Data Science, amongst others, and also Nick Salmon from Welcome Sanger, who is head of data delivery. So we're, we, we have already a great team, and it, it's focused on, on that wider delivery. Thanks very much, David. And, and to uh, a, a global and uh, historic brand, um, Eaton, uh, Eaton X. Catherine, tell us more about what you do and, and your business. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Catherine Whitaker. I'm CEO and Head of Learning at Eaton X. As Edwards mentioned, Eaton X is a wholly owned subsidiary of Eaton College. So like Wendy, uh, another august and ancient institution. Um, but we are effectively a London-based edtech company. And what we do is we both create the technology for, but also the course, courses for helping teenagers develop what some people call soft skills. We, t- we prefer to call future skills. Um, our most popular course in 2020 was resilience, perhaps no surprise. Um, but we also have courses in topics such as creative problem solving, creative uh, sort of critical thinking, entrepreneurship. And what we're essentially doing is taking um, what students at Eton and and lots of other schools get through um, the broad education provision there and turning them into courses that can be taken really anywhere in the world. Um, We're 100% online, so um, I mentioned that we create our own technology. We actually developed our own virtual classroom um, a few years ago because we didn't see anything out there that was going to allow... um, online education to take place effectively so it's obviously been very interesting to see what's happened over the last year Um, and as a result we now have sort of almost two different parts to our business so we have we're still running our courses and um, dealing with teenagers all over the world we've had students from over 60 countries come and take a course with us we work direct with consumers um, who come in and join other students uh, in our classes but we also work with um, institutions and work within their curriculum. Um, but at the same time, we're now also turning into a technology business and licensing our technology to other other parties as well to help them do some of the same things that we've been doing. Thanks very much, Catherine. And, and finally, to, to Robin. Yeah. Hi, hello, everyone. I'm Robin Headley. I'm Managing Director of Discovery Education International. And you'll probably best know know us from our big brands such as Discovery Channel, Science Channel, Animal Planet, etc. Um, Discovery Education was born probably about 20 years ago out of Discovery Inc. We've since about three years ago spun off from the mothership, and we are now private equity owned. We are in, in terms of what we do, we provide curriculum standards. We provide digital resources that connect to those standards as well as professional development in terms of best practice pedagogical approaches for the classroom. And where I fit into the organization is that we have three different PNLs. We have the U.S. where we're in about 50% of schools in the U.S. We are 
we have a second PML, which is the UK, which is historical, and that was due to a acquisition we made about seven eight years ago of Espresso. Who anybody based in the UK? Uh, probably knows um, one of the market leaders there, and then the third PNL, which is is my PNL, which is international, so it's outside the US, UK, Canada, and the last thing, just to set the context of where I might contribute to this conversation today, is um, understanding also the customer segment. So we work with ministries of education. Uh, doing complete educational reform, rewriting the curriculum frameworks, the standards, scope and sequence, all the way down to the digital and sometimes print resources and and training of the of the teachers across the country. Um, we also work with channel partners to be able to address the kind of individual school market, and we do also go directly to schools themselves as well worldwide. Thanks so much, Robin. Well, I, I, 45 minutes doesn't seem long enough, uh, given what you've all told us already about your businesses. Um, so thank you all for your introductions. Um, always, I always learn something from them, even from people I know already. Um, and I'm sure other people watching would agree. Um, just to um, sort of set the, set the scene a bit, really. I mean, having uh, heard as we all have what you what you do um i get a sense that um some of your businesses uh, were probably quite well prepared for and, and and almost anticipated um what's happened in the last years in terms of the the, the the need to be online um so i think with that in mind uh perhaps i could just first ask wendy you know uh and as i say in your case i realize you only started your job in august but um you, you'll be aware of what was happening the, the six months prior to that i imagine or you've heard um you know um, gresham college um historic institution as you say um you know perhaps you just tell us a little bit about how gresham was adapting before um march last year to the need to be online and um what's changed in the last 12 months so just a little bit of an insight will be useful and then I'll, I'll ask others to come in on 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 the same theme as to how your businesses have adapted over the last year yeah sure i mean i i'm horribly biased but uh, what's wonderful about gresham even though it's got this amazing historical pedigree it is actually it has been really quite cutting edge and it got its lectures online earlier than most other institutions so I, I can't claim any credit for the fact that um, uh, Gresham has really built on a firm foundation during the COVID lockdown, uh, focusing on improving that online offer. Um, but we've absolutely used this experience as a learning process. Uh, necessity is the mother of invention, no true word was said. So we've really tried to think about, well, what actually does the fact, for example, we've had to pre-record most of our lectures in the, the deepest, darkest stages of the lockdown, are there any benefits to that? And we did find some benefits. You know, we'd much prefer to live stream, but actually the fact that the lectures were pre-recorded and then streamed through Crowdcast, which enables comments and questions at the same time, means that actually our lecturers could watch themselves along with the audience and interact with the audience at the same time and answer questions as the lecture was um, was being broadcast. And that's what we didn't do and couldn't really do before the lockdown because the emphasis was either, you know, with the in-person audience or doing the live stream from our main venue. So what we really want to learn about and capture is more of that really healthy, interactive dynamic with the audience. And we had it really in the physical in-person audience in the various venues that we hired. But I think in the past, we didn't really capture it in any sufficient way in the past. So now we've got a glimmer of a direction of travel of really being much more interactive with our worldwide audience, not just with the audience we can squeeze in in the London venue. Thanks, Wendy. Uh, just moving from, from Gresham College, uh, 
tell me, Michael, tell us all, um, the uh, Sotheby's, as you say, you've, you've got two uh, businesses that are educational and, and, you know, have been online before March last year. But obviously, teaching in person is also a, a part of, of, of your educational offering. So, um, you know, this takes us a bit into, I guess, the uh, hybrid opportunities, whether you think there have been some positives out of it. Obviously, you know, you've, you've had to you had to adapt pretty quickly, I would imagine, particularly at the Institute. But could you tell us a little bit more about, um, as I say, the, the, the positives um, and uh, as well as the challenges of the last 12 months? Sure. <laughs> I mean, I think um, a couple of things. So, you know, when we built out the uh, the branded business model, um, the way the, the model works is we've got the schools as separate entities, and then we have a bunch of shared services groups. And a couple of years ago, when we were putting the, uh, the architecture of the, uh, of the, of the groupings, uh, we specifically called out to invest in a group that we're, we, we've called digital learning, right? And at the time, you know, I got a lot of uh, funny looks across the, uh, the faculty and especially since a lot of our faculty are teaching master's degree programs saying, well, why do we have this digital learning group? I mean, what, what's this all about? And I remember being in town halls saying, well, it's because the world's going more online and we need to create our Delta course of people who can do instructional design and think about all, all things digital learning. And again, I got these sort of weird looks across the, 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 the room. Um, roll the clock forward to about a year ago having that digital learning team was probably the best decision we ever made. Right. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, we may look smart by doing it, but at the same time to be candid with everyone, it was also very lucky that we, we made this call that early. Um, the digital learnings remit has been, Hey, go and find, be the, be the experts in how to develop online courses. Well, what happened in the pandemic is all of that strategic thinking was put aside and they were actually put to task to convert every single thing that we do that's in person into an online format. So I think that's the sort of the positive piece of what happened specifically in our entity. In terms of challenges, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion here about uh, the technologies, which I think, to be really candid, uh, there are so many technologies that are available uh, and ready to be used off the shelf or customized. So I think that, and, and the broadband issue, I think what you, we've also found is a lot of most most parts of the world have decent internet connection at this point. Um, so I think there are some um, infrastructure things that, that already exist. I thought the biggest challenge from our perspective was the it's it's the cultural, it's the you know getting the faculty on board. It's you know having this these really tough discussions with everyone to say, look, your job description from today has completely changed. And here are the reasons why you need to do certain things a different way. You need to go spend time training yourself on these platforms. You need to teach the students a different way. You need to change your curriculum. All the things that, you know, you thought were important, you know, in the curriculum because it provided experiential opportunities. Well, now you need to change those experiential opportunities because they're just not available. So for us, that was the hardest part, was actually trying to convince everyone inside the organization that we need to do things, forget differently. It's a, it's a 180 degree sort of way to do it. So I would say those are the two things that we 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 saw. Thank you, Michael. Yes, just just turning from um, from your business, uh, David. Just just give us. I, I get a sense from what you said that perhaps the the last year has presented fewer challenges for you than for some in education. But um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong in that assumption. You know, I mean, it's been a wonderful opportunity for us and. The way that we perceived it is really the challenge for us is is really delivering what is required by the customer. And what we see that is something which is we most of our business is emerging Asia. That's where we really see the demand for ed tech as a solution, because that's where you you, you have less teachers and there's a require for content. So the first order is the costing is really the bulk of emerging Asia is is looking at a price point which is between two to five dollars per month per child. And what is the expectation for that? Uh, the expectation for that is unlimited live classes, a degree, you know, a high degree of content, which might cover, you know, we, we focus particularly on younger, younger children, early grades. So they're focusing on numeracy courses, literacy courses, but also localization. 
you know, what we require is local language. So, for instance, in Pakistan, we, we need to re- we need to deliver Islamic content. We need to deliver Urdu content as well as delivering ESL content, which is, you know, Islamic Islamic friendly. And I think that what what we see is, again, is that local requirement. And but also it comes down to technology. So, for instance, it's not simple enough. You know, if we're deploying to clients, what we're doing is a B2B delivery is that we can't simply do a Google Cloud delivery or an AWS delivery. We also have to do that local server delivery, and we have to often find an implementation to what is a, their own MIS setup or their own ERP solution. So I think I would agree flexibility is the key, is what you need to be able to do is something to provide high technology, high content, which has data deliverables, particularly for Asian parents. And I think that would be the major message is that if you want to price consistently, particularly in Asia, if there isn't an adaptive element and if you really want to extract value, you have to show how content points can become informational and how informational points can become intelligent. And I think that that's that's the main inference I would make. Thanks very much, David. It's just taking, uh, going from your price points to um, Catherine. Um, obviously, uh, people don't associate uh, Eton College itself with being a, a, a place of, of low cost um, and, and high volume. Um, but but tell us more, please, for those that, that don't know about, you know, who are your uh, students, who are your customers, if you like, and also how has that shifted over the last 12 months? And uh, perhaps a little something on 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 the geographies you know whether there's been a a, a move there as well that would be fascinating for us all to to learn um sure so um, we we do a lot of our work in the international school market so um i would say the typical etonx student um has an aspiration to study internationally at uh, tertiary level so we we um our, our latest course publishing um having focused on on sort of future skills is in university preparation. So, you know, a typical uh, student might be in, say, Hong Kong or Malaysia um, or, or in the Gulf, and they'll be at an international school targeting targeting study study in uh, not necessarily in the UK, potentially Australia or um, or the US as well. And um, we, I mean, the last year for us has just been has been really fascinating. I mean, we'd, We'd solved a lot of the problems that I think, um, say, a typical curriculum school has found themselves with, which is how do you um, create uh, content and what technology works when you want a, a really meaningful or interact, interactive experience. So, um, you know, we, we teach in small groups. That's one of the things that I think a lot of uh, schools have learned. It's very difficult to give an effective class to 30 children or, or 25 children, um, but if you've got 16, 12, 15, that's, that's, that's a more comfortable number. Um, so we're, we're working, um, as I mentioned, using, using our own technology. And I think that the big change for us over the last year has been seeing how, when we first launched, and we're, I mean, it's worth saying we're a very young business, um, we launched the program that we have now only fully in September 2018. So COVID struck, we were, we were still very small. Um, what's the big, biggest change that we've noticed is how when we first launched, we would have to kind of make the case for the ability to learn online. So people would, would say, yes, I can, I, I can see how you might do maths online, but you know, what, what's this live group learning all about? How are you really going to get people? I mean, our first course was making an impact, which is assertiveness and influence, influencing um, skills. How do you do that online? We don't hear that so much anymore because, of course, the whole world has had to find a way of, of teaching online. Um, and actually what we're what we're seeing is people are now beginning to understand that a lot of the tools that they were using, which is whatever they had to hand, so obviously Zoom that we're in at the moment, or Teams, or Google Clark, um, Google Hangouts, or whatever they could get their hands on, they're not really what um, they're not really what they're not really designed for education. So I think um, what we've seen is the whole world kind of having done this massive experiment in live online learning and, and learned a whole load of lessons about what works and what doesn't. Um, and it's been really interesting to sort of have some of the same kind of conversations with clients um, in those markets that I've spoken about. And we're not having to convince them anymore that it's possible. 
but they have also seen what works and what doesn't. So um, it's a it's a maturing market effectively. I think people have learned an awful lot from the pandemic, and um, I think we'll see the growth of um, m models that come out of that, um, which are, are different to what went before. Um, you, you asked about um, you asked about territories, and I think mm. we are operating all over the world, but um, there are certainly um, some places that have been um, very receptive to what we're doing. That's obviously partly the brand, but it's also, um, I would say, we tend to work a lot with schools, often new schools. So they've um, they've maybe been focusing quite a lot on um, getting the kind of core curriculum in place. But when it comes to wanting to offer something a bit broader um, to focus on particular needs, such as university preparation or career readiness, then then that's that's when we tend to come into play. Thanks very much, Catherine. So, um, and, and then finally, just to sort of develop that theme a bit, um, Robin, um, has, has your business had to make um, fairly sudden and rapid changes or has it been a more organic um, sort of period the last 12 months and, uh, you know, with new opportunities to embrace, to act, to augment, um, you know, your existing business model? Um, and any insights on that would be very welcome. Yeah. Um, so basically, Discovery Education is a digital first com uh, company. So I did mention print because in some countries, the infrastructure structure just isn't there. So you have to adapt to different learning environments, which is one of the biggest challenges. Um, but because we're a digital first country uh, company, we are we were pretty well prepared for the uh, pandemic. However, having said that, our products were actually designed to be used in the classroom. So what we found was that we didn't really have to adapt much our actual products when we're talking about the school market, not the MOE level. We're talking about the school market, but we had to support the teachers and the students in terms of learning it, in terms of using it in a different way. So probably a really interesting example is we're doing some work with Al Guerrero and War Child, and we are providing digital education to Syrian refugees in Lebanon aligned to the Lebanese curriculum. And that is being done 100% digitally. And what we found is, interestingly, is the use case it has been just completely different than than you would see in the classroom, where they're they're one of our highest users of self-created content, which is Studio, where they bring in they're creating lessons and kind of an elaborate PowerPoint where you bring assessment and everything else. You 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 send it out to the the student, the student fills it in, some you know comes back, and so we're seeing different lower uses in some some areas and higher in others within our platform itself. Um, I'd say the other thing that we're seeing um, also really is different according to geography as well. So in certain geographies, because of the pandemic, where Latin America has been economically really affected. So even though digital is needed, um, they don't have the infrastructure and they haven't had the you know the economic means to be able to do as much as, let's say, in the Middle East. So in the Middle East, what we're seeing is, especially at the MOE level, the whereas before we, were, we had all these discussions of the MOEs go about transforming, doing digital transformation, educational um, transformation, like we're doing in Egypt, which we are already doing, but in the Gulf states, that their priorities have now gone from here to here in terms of digital, and their time frame has gone from, you know, like, from here to here. So we're seeing a high priority and they are just running at a huge speed um, in terms of trying to get digital in place, um, which is very interesting. Yeah, thanks so much, Robin. Um, I might just say to all those watching, please um, sort of line up, put through your questions on the chat function, because uh, I know Daniel will be uh, looking forward to bringing them to the panel in a few minutes' time. Um, just um, picking up on on those points, um, we, we've just had a, a range of perspectives from from around the world, really, which is which is just what we wanted. Um, the, um, the, the the question, I suppose, that, that this comes back to for me is is has this uh, last twelve months, which is 
for many people been um, a, a, a negative experience rather than a positive. But uh, has this been uh, in some ways, possibly as we as we look back and, and certainly looking forward, an opportunity which has 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 leveled up to some degree opportunities educationally, um, online learning rather than uh, in person? Uh, has it? I mean, David, you touched on on sort of price points. I mean, has it been an opportunity for people, for example, to 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 buy an online uh, course when they couldn't possibly afford it to do a residential in-person course? Um, be interested to get your your, your different thoughts on that not necessarily from within your business but from others you deal with Michael could, could you just share your thoughts in, in in that sense and has it perhaps affected any plans for the future so in other words the sort of business opportunities you're looking at both within existing businesses or potential acquisitions or partnerships has, has it sort of helped change your strategy a bit uh, so I, I think I, I don't know that it uh, it changed our strategy. I think I think um, I think one of the themes that you're going to uh, hear a lot is a, a lot of these changes were I think were afoot already, and I think the pandemic has really just accelerated everything, right? I mean the the rules got thrown out the window, and all the strategic plans that we've been planning and 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 putting you know launch periods of 18 months for an online course shrunk to two weeks, you know so. I think that um, it's accelerated a lot of things. I think there's been some really positive uh, things that came out of it, uh, which ultimately I think will help all of our business models, which is, um, and I I don't know how much you're feeling this in the UK and maybe other parts of the world, but what happened in the US in 2020, there was also a major, major awakening of all sorts in terms of issues related to diversity, uh, racism, equity. I mean, it, it has been... Um, and one of the things that keep coming out, uh, which is a natural fallout of these kind of situations is, well, you know, it's all about the economic uh, privilege that certain groups have and certain groups don't have. And if you think about it from a, let's put, put it into the, the, the education filter, I think clearly online education provides much, much more access, you know, the accessibility goes up, Right. If you think about the elements that are needed to go take an online course, it's internet connection, it's a good laptop, it's some of these basic things that I think, you know, Robin was talking about how Latin America doesn't, you know, from an infrastructure perspective, hasn't really developed itself. And I think, I think you're going to see countries start changing their policies and where they put their investment as a result of what happened in the pandemic. And so as those things happen, I think the access to education and content is the price of that's going to just continue to get lower which I think is, is sort of welcome news for uh, groups that have been underrepresented uh, in, 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 the, in the educational opportunities that we've uh, seen it historically. Thanks, Michael. Yes, I wonder whether just to sort of create a degree of debate and dissent, Wendy, um, your uh, background and, and, and experience has been predominantly in you know, higher education and policy making. Um, do you think it is important we hold on to as far as possible the, the in-person uh, element of the lecture hall, the classroom, the tutorial? Do you, do you think, in other words, there is a, a, a sort of a limit, a glass ceiling, if you like, on what um, online learning can do? deliver are there certain benefits if you like still to be uh, encouraged and promoted and and uh, you know in the future it's so it, it, that's one of the million dollar questions that people are grappling with um and i was reading actually partly in preparation for this seminar a report from cambridge university and in fact the person who wrote the report was supposed to be doing a different project in india i think it was and then found themselves stuck back in the uk and thought actually i should be analyzing the impact of covid on higher education learning and particularly on cambridge and actually cambridge was one of the first universities apparently in the uk to say, right, we've put all our courses online, I think, for 2021. So they took quite a lead. And they found that their students were, well, a greater appetite for learning online, obviously by necessity during that period, but going forward as well, that it had created a step change in the perception. Because I think... We used to grapple with this, uh, the Russell Group. One of the issues I often found articulated to me by companies that specialised in online learning was 
their frustration in some ways that uh, leading universities were seen as primarily uh, adopting a model of in-person teaching. And there was so much kudos around that, that it was hard for other online companies to get the same level of status. So I think what may have happened, but we'll have to see, it may be too soon to tell, is that indeed there has been a much greater acceptance of uh, the strengths of online learning. And I was looking at some of the stats as well that were really persuasive, not just from the Cambridge report, but from another report, which was saying that actually... Um, that on average students learn much more quickly and more intensively through the online experience. Having said all of that, I think there is a consensus that there is still a role for some kind of in-person interaction. And that may be not just in the learning, but, you know, the benefits that are still there um, from going to university in really just physically interacting with people from very different backgrounds to yourself and really forcing you to think from different perspectives. It's, it's very hard to replicate that. So I do think the, the, the question is how large that component needs to be. What is the perfect balance? And I think institutions will be grappling with that key question more urgently than they would have done prior to the pandemic. And just to say, having, you know, sung the praises, absolutely, and I'm persuaded of online learning, one of the reports I wrote, now this is many years ago in government, was on closing the digital divide. And I worry whilst on balance, absolutely, online learning can, can really be a promoter of social mobility. And that's core to our mission at Gresham. There is still a worry, we mustn't forget, that in some circumstances, it can widen the socioeconomic divide, particularly globally. If you have countries, I think I saw Indonesia quoted, were, where you know so few people had appropriate access to the technology they needed, and then of course other countries where most students had you know full access to computers. So whilst I'm absolutely a proponent of the benefits of online learning to promote social mobility, to promote equality, we must never forget that there could be creeping in, again, a digital divide that, that needs monitoring uh, pretty much constantly by governments and by other agencies. Thanks, Wendy. Yes, just picking that point up with, with you, David, um, you're, obviously you, you described your business, but I mean, do you, do you, do you hope and do you expect and, and would you be very much in favour of um, a certain amount or high proportion at different stages, probably, I guess, less as, as, as people become older, you know, so sort of K-12 um, versus higher education. Do, do you think there'll be um, still an emphasis and should, should still be an emphasis on, um, you know, classroom learning as opposed to online learning um, when, we, when we come out of this, uh, this crisis? I think we very much believe in the blended paradigm. So really, if you put them, to, them together, they're most effective. I think the danger is, is if you have a pure digital delivery in some aspects where you don't have aspect, where you don't have access to digital devices, you really work, you really well widen the divide. It is pretty scary. And you see this in across Asia. And so the people who have suffered most, and we look particularly at India where we're focused on, uh, you know, this, the schools are closed. The parents, the schools are having a hard, hard time and, 30% of children have no access to education whatsoever in the last year. So they've really suffered. But I think that when we come back to that blended paradigm, it really is, is communicating with a parent. So if you can use those data resources and you can map out the classroom data perspective, and then you can, you can message that to the parent, the homework delivery becomes much more effective. And as, as, as that links together, you get, you get a much clearer delivery and the children can learn more easily. I think when we look at education, we see a lot of heuristic patterns. So we see rules of thumb to help people learn, to help children learn. If we can help analyze that and point it in the direction, and online is a great facilitator, actually it can make the classroom also a more enjoyable experience. 
Thank you very much. Um, Catherine, perhaps um, just over to you. Um, you obviously um, are, are in regular contact with your colleagues um, in, in Eton College. Um, you know, give us a sense of, of, of you know, whether there's been, um, uh, you know, how this how this year's impacted on the, um, or, or if you like, the parent company, for want of a better term. Well, actually, I mean, what, what I'd love to bring in here is um, some examples of how um, we work with the Eaton Partnership team um, on that issue of um, um, widening access. And your know, technology has been absolutely transformational here because we were um, already working with some of Eaton's, Eaton's partner schools um, to provide some of our courses. Um, Eaton um, supports teaching at Hollyport College and also at the London Academy of Excellence in, in Stratford in East London. Um, which is a huge success story. Um, but the, the pandemic allowed us to look at well, what, what more can we do? Um, and as Michael said, there has very much been the same shift here of people feeling that you know, we, 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 we must address inequality. And we opened up our Future Skills Programme to all UK secondary schools um, in May last year. That's been that's been an extremely big scheme for us. Um, we, we've had tens of thousands of students come and take free courses with us. That's an ongoing commitment as well. We're, we're, we've, we've, had, um, we've relaunched each term since and we continue to have, we've had over a thousand UK schools take, take part in that scheme. Um, and that's, you know, that's been fantastic for us to obviously support young people, people across the UK, um, but we've also learned an awful lot from the experience as well. You know, we've seen, we, we've got far more UK-based students now, we've seen some of the um, the needs that they have and we can sort of plough that experience back into our own, um, our own product development. That's one of the reasons why we went into university preparation courses as our next step, because we saw that, that that's something that we could help um, help with in that, in that community. Um, and, and in the future, I think, um, you know, Eton, if they are helping other schools with teachers, that's releasing a, a teacher to physically go to the school. It could be a half day out of that teacher's time. Um, and we're looking at ways of allowing that to go online as well. So technology will be allowed, will allow those partnerships to be, to be much broader than, than they currently are. So it's, uh, you know, it, I absolutely agree that um, we've got to be really careful that people have access to, to the devices and to the data um, but it can be such a such a force for good. Thank you very much. I'm at this point going to hand over to uh, Daniel. Um, I, I've seen questions already starting to come in, and I'm conscious that we've not got a lot of time for you to answer them. So, um, uh, Daniel, if you'd like to uh, take over the baton and um, uh, uh, pick up on anything that's uh, uh, that's that's come in already, and and I'd encourage others to um, to, to sort of enter into the, um, the, the the question and answer session now. Thank you. Thank you, Edward. Yes, no, please do fire across questions that you might have. We have some coming in already. Um, just to explain where I uh, fit in, I uh, run a business called Spectrum. We're a technology sector-focused uh, executive search firm. Uh, and the work we do often takes us into sectors that are being changed by technology. So really delighted to uh, partner with uh, Edward and the team at Wild Search, who are education sector specialists. Uh, for this particular uh, panel. Um, I thought I'd also just share uh, an interesting sort of survey which I saw yesterday, which was produced by Newsround. And those of you who are outside of the UK who don't know Newsround, that's a TV magazine show for kids. Uh, and they surveyed 2013 to 16-year-olds. Uh, and their findings, I think, were quite interesting. Uh, what they found was, uh, was in regards to remote learning that 87% of kids um, had been homeschooled uh, during the last year. 45% uh, of those said that they were unhappy uh, about not being in school. Um, however, uh, I think interestingly and encouragingly, 32% uh, said that remote schooling was better than usual. And 51% uh, said they were where they should be uh, in their schoolwork. So I think that's very very encouraging. Um, the other very interesting fact, which was a surprise to me, was that 71% said they had a device exclusively to use themselves for the homeschooling, and only 1% uh, said they had no device at all. Now, clearly, 
best part of 30% of the sharing device. But uh, that perhaps suggests that might be less of a digital divide, uh, certainly in the UK, than we might expect. And I just wondered from the panel whether those findings were a little bit of a surprise. Um, perhaps particularly for those that are, you know, outside the UK, maybe, you know, David, Michael and, and Robin in particular, whether you'd see that digital divide being perhaps more of a challenge outside of the, uh, the UK than it seems to be here. David, I don't know if you'd like to sort of pick that up based on your experience, I guess, particularly yeah. in the Asian market. Yeah, I think mainly in the Asian markets, it's really very, very device focused. So, when you look at devices, you, you, can't, you can't make digital education for an iPad or a computer often. You have to make it, in the, in the lowest case, you might make it for a very small picture, you know, a very low capacity phone. So you have to be very focused. So, you know, when we look at those deliveries, and Indonesia is a good example, where actually mobile phone penetration is one of the highest in the world. The average, the average person in Indonesia actually has two mobile phones. You know, it was one of Nokia's and Blackberry's top markets in the world. But actually, iPads are pretty rare. So it's really horses for courses. You've got to think about what is, what is the necessary device and program effectively and just show a lot of flexibility on, on what is your tech delivery. Thank you. Robin, do you have a, a, a view on the digital divide based on your uh, international experience? Yeah, I do. And I think um, it depends, um, you know, when we go market to market, uh, the divide is, is larger or smaller. And that's very much driven by the infrastructure, but also the vision of the leadership as well in terms of the major two drivers. What we do to address it, first of all, coming back to the blended, we, we also very much support a blended approach, even though we're a digital first com company. Uh, we very much, in terms of trying to get inquiry-based learning and developing the four Cs, you really need that, that in-person as well. In terms of the digital divide, the way we address that is that we do think of every learning environment. So when I talk about learning environments, it's high-tech, it's low-tech, it's no tech, and how you can actually teach the same skills in those environments. And I think a really interesting example is coding, right? So coding is one of our flagship uh, products as well that we launched in 2013 as a response of the, to the UK putting coding as mandatory into the curriculum. And coding, you think, how, how can I teach coding without a computer, right? It's a computer. You can. Um, so you can actually create an offline environment where a student or, you know, a kid is an object and you give the verbal commands, do the, do the, what you would be doing writing. And then the, the kid actually moves or the object that's moving as a result of the commands. So that's a good example of how you can actually really adapt and then learning outcomes. Um, I won't say they're a hundred percent the same, but it's all about that same critical thinking process. It's, it's, it's very close. So you're still kind of providing that. In terms of the divide, though, um, what we did do, we have a lot of years of experience in the U.S., and interestingly, what we, so we've done a lot of studies on this, and interestingly, what we found is that we've done studies where you, if you use just textbooks versus, what we, we have tech book, we have science textbooks, math textbook, versus textbook in the classroom, basically the results are, are higher by, by using that blended approach, right, in-person plus digital. But what's really interesting is when you look at low-income families, uh, if you look at kids that English is not their first language, those with learning disabilities, that increase doesn't just go to here, it actually goes to here. So if you're able to give the, the – you can get – country, government support to get accessibility to the technology, we have proven that the learning outcomes um, are substantially greater, more so for those that are more challenged. Super. Thank you, Thank you Robin. And if we're saying as a, as a, a, a group, which I, which I think we are, that, um, you know, we're not going back, um, you know, a hybrid model, uh, and in some cases, uh, a pure online model, uh, will do well. Um, what do you think are the important sort of considerations to ensure that that, that continues to happen and that continues to be really effective? I suppose what we see in industries that have been transformed by digital is it's hard to transform 
because it's outside your core skill set, if we take that as a sort of education sector. Um, and I think, you know, David, you touched on, you know, the, the role of data in terms of your sort of proposition. And Michael, I think you mentioned, you know, the group that you put together right at the start. Do you see that sort of school groups will need a chief digital officer or something of that nature to sort of keep them at the forefront of uh, of hybrid and online learning? Perhaps I could uh, address that to you to start off with, Michael. Wow, that's a <laughs> that's a that's a big question. Um, I mean, I can I can speak a little bit about the U.S. I think when you get into uh, some real changes that are needed, right? I think so. So let's just take a just a snapshot of what happened. Um, the technologies are available, right? The the will is there. You got enough. You know, we're all part of a, a in some ways a capitalistic society where if these opportunities present themselves, you see a lot of capital and companies move towards these opportunities. I don't think there's going to be a shortage from that perspective. I think the issue is really going to be in the political realm, you know, where, um, look, I, I was, I, I'm originally from Korea. I was, I was born in Korea. And I, I think, David, I think you may be based in Korea. I'm so, based in Seoul. So, so you know this really well. When we grew up, you know, we would give up everything for our education, right? And if you think about the Korean economic policy and how much money they spend on education and the, you know, the internet access and, and all of those things, the schooling system, look, it, it's got its issues, but education has always been a priority for Korea as a country. And I think that is the issue that we're dealing with, where in the U.S., if you look at the budget, all, all anyone has to do is take a look at the U.S. government budget, and you'll see where their priorities are. And education has not been, you know, at the forefront and at, at the top of that. And that's where you see all these issues. And I think, you know, it's one of these things where, if, if I could be, you know, the uh, take a magic wand and take one or two percent out of the U.S. budget and shift that to education, right, away from defense and some of these other things, I think you're going to see some massive, massive changes because if you think about it, this is not that expensive stuff, right, providing Internet access. I mean, you know, Chromebooks are 300 bucks a pop, right, if you want to give it to the students. So we're not talking about these mega, mega trillion dollar kind of investments that are needed here. And so that's where I would look to, to try to get a little bit more uh, hope, if you will, that these changes could be more permanent. I think if the, if the, if we don't see changes in that realm, you know, it, it's going to have to be the commercial side that's going to have to keep pushing for these changes. And we're going to keep on running up against that sort of public system, which has really not evolved and innovated for a very long time. Absolutely. No, th thank you, Michael. Catherine, can I, can I bring you in on this particular sort of point? I wonder what your sort of thoughts are sort of looking forward in terms of, you know, how you might, uh, you know, stay at the forefront of, of digital. Um, well, to answer that and perhaps touch on the previous question as well, I, mean, I think, I think there, are, there are three key elements. So you need the right tools. Uh, and as I mentioned, I think a lot of teachers have not been using the right tools to 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 teach. We, we people grab what they could, but actually, um, I think we'll see a, a maturing of the tools um, and the technology that allows um, teachers to teach um, in a, in a hybrid way. And I think that will have an impact on models. So you'll begin to see um, things. Uh, one thing that's happening a lot, and we're talking to a lot of school groups who want to make a virtue of their network, for example. So. Yeah, they might have students in different places. Um, they might only have one, say, Russian teacher, but you can bring a group together to do a lesser studied modern language or a, or a classical subject if you can bring, if you can connect people in the right way. So, but you need the right, you need the right tools. Um, Michael touched on this. You need really good program development. Um, you can't just port what happens offline online and expect it to work. Um, my background is in publishing and um, program design and content development and great online learning experiences are need to be very carefully thought through so the, mod, the pedagogical model has to be right um, we use an online learning approach so that the, the the virtual classroom time is very carefully programmed into a program of self-study because students can't be on screen the whole time you need to be thinking what's on what's offline um, what's the right class size, um, that whole program design and the quality of the content has to be there. 
and then finally, um, you need the training, and the and the, the teachers need to be um, need to know what they're doing. Um, I think great teaching is great teaching. It doesn't matter that it's online or offline, but. Great online teachers have to be very comfortable with technology. Um, they have to be comfortable doing classroom management using technology. And uh, as David said, they need to be, you know, maybe looking at some other some other things. There are data points to be looking at which um, you might not have in a in a in a live classroom offline. So I think those those three things um, all have to work together. You need the right tools. You need the right program design, and you need the right um, people and training to to um, to make it all work. Absolutely. Th thank you so much, Catherine. That, that brings us sort of very neatly on to my, probably our, our last question. We've got five minutes left, which is sort of conversely. So if you look at um, school leadership um, and, and, and start, presumably this new way of doing things will you know, change how school leaders are assessed, what makes a good school leader versus a, a not-so-good school leader. Uh, leader, uh, And also the same with sort of teaching staff as well. And uh, uh, Wendy, perhaps I could sort of bring you in on that sort of particular point, whether you'd anticipate moving forward that, you know, this is going to be a sort of key factor for... Uh, for schools, or, or perhaps less so, you know, good educators are good educators regardless of the medium. Actually, I think it's a good question, and it ties in with your previous question, at least in the way I was going to answer it, because I think you do need really clever leadership to make sure, indeed, we harness this momentum uh, for online learning. And in doing that, we can't ignore the counter-arguments. Uh, and that may be putting it too strongly, but the arguments that I touched on as well um, about where physical interaction is hard to replicate, we must make sure that people don't then hanker too much after the in-person experience if we don't really address them. And actually, that takes me quite nicely to some of the questions online, some really clever questions for example, by Ralph, Alex, Neil, and they're, they're asking some of the counter questions. What about mental health provision? Uh, what do you do? What about isolation? And that's a really good question. How do we make sure that that's safeguarded if we are going predominantly online? That needs careful thought. Um, and, and that's right. I think it's Ralph or Alex was following on from what I was saying, and quite rightly, um, mentioning that the OU, of course, was in the vanguard of this, and they tried to harness the best of online, and at the time it was primarily through the TV, um, but also tried to make sure there were opportunities for people to interact. Um, what does that mean? So I think clever leadership that really makes sure we don't go backwards is brave to really take on the challenges and possibly the weak points of an online learning package. Mm. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, we, we've got lots of, of, of really interesting questions and, and very fascinating questions. I, I think probably we've got, we've got time for, for one more, um, uh, which is, can the panellists throw some light on how far we are from true personalisation for every learner? Um, David, perhaps that's a, a data question that I could uh, address to you. Yeah. yeah, I think this whole nature of asynchronous learning, I mean, that's where we're very focused. And, that, that, and we really think, for instance, that the UK is really a leader in that talent, which is why we, have a lot, why we hire people in the UK in terms of the Bayesian traditions and understanding data. The UK really is a leader. When we look at that, we need a lot of longitudinal data to really make that analysis. And we, if online learning began last year, we probably need two or three years of data to really establish models which represent the model of the learner. And that, that's what we'll really need to develop full asynchronous learning and fully adaptive learning so we can truly understand how the learner develops over time and how we can understand how they react to scope and sequence and how they progress. So I think, to be honest, true adaptive learning is probably two to three years away. And that's, that's not AGI or some form of sort of intelligence. That's just really deeply understanding how the learner can do and, and, how, it, and how it can make it work. 
Thank you, David. Would, would anybody else like to sort of comment on that, that final point? No? Good. Good. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've seen uh, in other markets, you know, personalization uh, be a, a key factor as, uh, as, as, as markets mature through technology and, and healthcare is a, is a prime example of that. So perhaps we will see uh, education going that way. Um, we're into our last minute, and uh, I, I know we promised to uh, stop on time, although uh, clearly we've got enough questions for another event. But uh, thank you all uh, for attending. Thank you so much uh, to uh, the panellists in particular for, for your time. Uh, I thought I'd just wrap up and finish with a, a, a note from Ian Stewart, who's the uh, chief economist at the Deloitte. Uh, and he says, uh, economists don't agree about much but there's a strong consensus that education is a powerful, powerful enabler of growth and, and living standards. So uh, you all have a, a really important uh, role to play. Uh, and, and congratulations on the great work that you've done over the last year. I think the uh, medical sector has been well recognised, perhaps the uh, education sector uh, less so. So congratulations and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you for all your time. And uh, Edward and myself and Amy will uh, follow up with you shortly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Thank, Thank you very much. Good night.